I'm always a little behind the wave. People were talking about pumpkin spice, maybe like five to seven years later, I was like, hmm, maybe I should try pumpkin spice. <laughs> so this is the first year I'm having it. This is a history podcast. We're always five to seven years behind the times minimum. <laughs> true, true. Chris Chang and Phillips. I'm Trevor Chow Fraser. And this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about local history. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, or Miswichi, Wiskaigan, on Treaty 6 territory, Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this is a podcast where we talk about becoming a historian. I just started a master's in history at the University of Alberta. Okay, what, Trevor, when you were in university, did you feel like your family, like when you were on the phone with them and they were like checking in with you? Do you feel like they didn't really have any idea what you were up to? Oh, yeah. And actually, you know, the funny thing about when I went away to university was that I was like my friends that I was making would have like weekly phone calls with their mom and dad back home. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized I kind of really wanted that. Mm. And my parents never called me. (laughs) And I remember the first time I called home and they were kind of like surprised. And I was like, "Ah, I see. You sent me away. <laughs> you sent me away. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> Some people like having an empty nest. Yeah. Oh, they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think also they, uh, they, they're definitely curious about my life away at university because they, yeah, they didn't really know what it's like. Hmm. Um, I was talking to my grandma today for the first time in a month. And uh, I, I felt kind of bad that I hadn't called her. And she was like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. I didn't call you because I just saw you were busy. And I was like, oh, I mean, you were right. But also, like, you know, it's nice to let people in a little bit on what is going on in your life every once in a while. So that's what I want to do with this episode is let you and listeners in on, like, what an actual day for me in university is like. Right. So the next time your grandma calls, you can be like, listen to my podcast, grandma. <laughs> just listen. To I'm the a podcast. busy man. I'll send you a link. So yeah, I wanted to help listeners especially like understand what a day in the life of studying to be a historian is like beyond, you know, being busy, Um, especially in the fall of 2021. Um, You know, the pandemic's still on, but the university's open. And most of my classwork and my job, too, are actually in person on campus right now. Um, It's weird. This seems to be really fraught for everyone I know. Everyone who really wants to be back in person, but is also like unable to comprehend that they're back in person. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that. I I feel like I have less complicated feelings than a lot of people at this moment. Um, So this day that I'm recording is October 8th. It's a Friday. Um, Friday mornings, I have to be on campus at like 9 a.m. I have a reading class with just my friend Dylan Hall and our supervisor, Lisa Piper, which basically means Dr. Piper assigns us a book or a couple articles that we have to read each week, and then we show up and we talk about it for two hours. I'm not a big morning person, uh, but I have a couple of like regular parts of my routine. Uh, first thing is I always listen to CBC News while I'm getting ready in the bathroom. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, I listen to World Report. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listen to it on demand. So just no matter what time I'm, I'm up to date. So I listen to that. And then I head downstairs. I put on a kettle so that I can make some coffee. Um, I take my allergy meds. <laughs> I eat some breakfast. I go feed the fish. 
and then I hop on my bike. I live close enough to campus that I can bike. Um, although uh, it's usually the fastest way for me to get there, but it's been like a bad video game these days with all the construction. Like literally some days there's just a road missing on my route or a bridge is gone. <laughs> oh, like it's clipped out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so this was one of those days where, you know, I'm, I'm running a little bit behind. I, I, I parked my bike outside the Tory building, which is the tallest building on campus, and I really like it because that's where the CGSR transmitter is on top of. Um, so I put on my face mask, I jog up to the second floor, and I head to a very boring room where I'm meeting Lisa and Dylan. Alright, so not boring conversation, but why do you say the room is boring? Uh, because it's... Uh, there's almost nothing in it that's memorable, um, except that there's a single painting on one wall and all of the tables that are packed in there. There's too many tables for this room. They're in a huge <laughs> okay. square. It's set up for like 20 people, but there are three of us. So Dylan and I usually sort of sit, sit like somewhat distant in one corner. And then Lisa sits like, like far away from us near the door. And otherwise it's like a completely unremarkable room. I'm but only that... telling you that. Is the distance because of COVID or is the distance because of bad space planning? Uh, all of the above. All of the above. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's an awkward setup. Um, and I also say that it's boring because I just want to, like, contrast this later with my favorite room in this building. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the CGSR transmitter room. No, not the transmitter room. I've never been allowed up there. Um so we all keep our masks on, which, you know, feels a little bit dystopian if you think about it too much. So I try not to. And I just try to appreciate that I actually get to see these people in person every week and talk about books with them. Is it weird that we keep our masks on even though close contact is considered, you know, 15 minutes within two meters with no masks? It sounds like in this gigantic room, you wouldn't need masks even even under the regulation. Um you know, I, I think Justin Ling has a great article um, out in Vice about some of the holdovers of the early stage of the pandemic mm. that we're s still holding on to, even though the evidence has changed about how meaningful they are, like putting up plexiglass barriers, sanitizing lots of stuff. We now realize like these are not very meaningful for how COVID is actually transmitted because it's mostly an airborne, airborne yeah. disease. It's not spread by like contact with surfaces very much, if at all. Um, so... Well, let's let's stick to the books. <laughs> What's uh, what are you there to actually do to learn? Um, so uh, we're reading all kinds of different books in this class, which is kind of neat. Um, it's it's very geared to a Dylan and I are actually studying for our theses. Um, uh, all three of us, in various ways, are looking at environmental history in the Rockies in our work. Um, my thesis is going to be looking at how paleontology got to be such a big priority in Yoho National Park. Um, but the range of stuff we're reading this semester is pretty huge. There, we read some stuff on decolonization and research in indigenous communities. Um, we read a, a great book called Same Sex Affairs that covers queer men's lives in the Pacific Northwest around the early 1900s. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so juicy. Um, uh, we read some stuff about oral history and journalism. And this particular day, Dylan was supposed to read a book about the history of environmental thinking, and I was supposed to read a book called The Great Devonian Controversy. Mm. Supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so we're each assigned a book, and we both read a bunch. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this sounds like standard student stuff. <laughs> You're I, supposed to do something, and then you kind of do it. Uh, it's just, <laughs> like... When I, 
But when I first showed up in September, like seeing the reading lists for all these courses, I thought, like this is humanly impossible, the amount of reading that everybody expects you to do. Like I, I could not, I literally could not physically read every page of everything assigned to me every week on top of working and volunteering at the Dino Lab and trying to go to like grad student association meetings and cooking and laundry and like, it's, it's not physically possible. So uh, I have tried to get strategic. Um, I read a couple book reviews about each book <laughs> first, and then I read the beginning of the book, I read the end, I read a couple important chapters, and then honestly, I skim through the rest. Chris, though, okay, I, I totally validate your approach, mm-hmm. but you have to be careful because a lot of those Amazon reviews are like paid for, you know? <laughs> yes, I can relate. <laughs> Um, okay, so I think that what we'll do with um, the books is, Chris, if you wanted to sort of start us off with the great- It's my turn today to, to summarize my reading first, and uh, so you'll hear Dylan typing in the background. Um, so this book is uh, by a paleontologist who's named Martin Rudwick, who ended up writing several books about the history of science. Um, the Great Devonian Controversy is about this huge debate that erupted amongst all these geologists in Victorian Britain in the 1830s who are trying to figure out the rules about how we know how old the layers of the earth are. Um, and then one of them found coal and fossil plants where some of these geologists really didn't think they should be. They thought it was completely out of order for where they thought coal and plant life in general began. So the, the geologist who um, accidentally I don't, I, I, I'm sure he would have preferred not to have been the one to discover this controversy. Was um, Henry Dilbesh, right? Um, two camps. Like, what were their two claims that they were trying to get support around again? Um, so the the in the end of the book, he calls. So there's the coal measures group. So okay. um, they're saying um, what you've found is a bunch of these. Um, coal layers that we're already familiar with just randomly laying on top of, or not randomly, but unconformably laying on top of old rocks. Okay. So it's not like, it's not like they didn't accept the idea of geological time. It's not a, it's not like a God versus dinosaurs versus science debate. It's something more technical. Um, I think Redwick makes like a show, shows some good evidence that the the number of people in Victorian Britain who thought that the Earth was literally as old as biblical scholars said it was was it was very very few, especially among people who were becoming more more and more professionalized geologists. Um, most of the geologists at this time were like gentlemen geologists. They were people who were like they had a bit of wealth, they had a bit of time, um, and. For the most part, although people didn't know exactly how old the Earth was, they knew it was, uh, like, the, because they were adding up all these layers of the Earth, they were getting a picture of, whoa, this is much, much older than we had previously believed. The mm-hmm. real debate was about, like, like developing structured, universalizable rules about how you know, like, one layer is older than the other. So, Rebecca's is trying to, like... Um, Trying to, trying to look at two different ways of looking at science. One is that like we just gather new evidence and then we just find the truth. The science is just a set of accumulating new ideas and, and discovering new truth. And then he's looking at the um, contextual models that we've, we've been talking about where science is just um, uh, a very culturally and socially specific 
set of ways of describing reality, and that's that's all it is. Is um, um, it's just um, ideas in context. And he's saying like it's it's kind of both. Like you have to look at how people are gathering ideas and the ways in which like people are thinking of professional reputation and, and um, relationships and like the cost of postage. And you have to look at the fact that like. Delabesh was too broke to travel to London regularly, so he felt like kind of defensive when he was writing like a lot of letters for other people to read out at, at society meetings. And, and like the fact that the society was pretty unique in allowing discussion of papers after they were presented, he says is like part of why the Geological Society of London became like very influential in working out these ideas. But he's also saying like all of these people were looking at reality too. They were working with colleagues in Europe to look at um, like corresponding rocks together. They were traveling to Russia to gather new evidence, and they were coming often with preconceptions of what they would find, which is, I, I thought was kind of interesting too, like that they, they arrived with often the intention of finding very persuasive evidence to back up what they already thought, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting to think about, like the, the, like the British Ale thing, like I kept thinking about, like, okay, what ideas might someone like Charles Lockwell have been arriving with? Um, I think it, I think it's super interesting because um, one of the ways today we date rocks and fossils is by looking at trace fossils around them, um, because now we've come to the understanding that life changes pretty regularly over time, and so if you look in like the fossils around a big dinosaur bone, if you look for like the itty bitty little grains of pollen that are fossilized along with it, for example, like pollen from 160 million years ago will be reliably different from pollen that's 162 million years old or 164 million years old. And so that's one of the ways that you can date it. Uh, like, is this older or younger than fossils that are near it? Um, and they were still developing some of those methods at that time. Like the, there was not agreement yet about whether that was a, a fair way to, to date relative age of rocks. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. The, 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 the book really, although it goes into those, like the beautiful nerdy details of this by going like, like sometimes like day by day through these arguments that they were having um, through correspondence because this was like a golden age of people sending letters to each other and um, there were all these debates in like in scientific journals that um, some geological associations that were part of were publishing. Um, he shows that like we have this idea that knowledge is uh, slowly accumulated over time. It's just like a pile that's getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, and he shows like actually... Um, he relies on this theorist, Thomas Kuhn. Actually, we go through these cycles of like what he calls like puzzle science, kind of where we're just solving problems and then encountering anomalies that challenge our assumptions about how the world works, mm. which leads to these crises. And then we like argue about which paradigms might explain these anomalies best. And then Thomas Kuhn generally says that like these debates are resolved by not like coming to a rational bit of evidence that finally like solves it, but by certain people who are influential in the field des deciding that it's resolved, deciding that it's it's over. Right. And um, Rudwick argues that this is basically what happened in this case. Um, that um, although 
they were gathering a lot of really important evidence. They were going out and doing field work um, and, and, you know, like seriously considering the evidence that they saw. Also, he, he looks at these like very influential people and all their arguments and like trying to like tear each other's reputations apart kind of to, to show that the debate was essentially over when the most important and influential geologists in Britain decided the debate was over in the 1840s. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like that idea of, um, I mean, this all sounds really interesting because it is like so, it's so interesting to think about how as a 30 something year old, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm realizing like how much I learned about the world when I was, so, so just like 20 years ago, I guess, 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And it's like, you, you learn things as a kid, like there's dinosaurs and there's tectonic plates and it's just like, well, that's clearly accepted fact mm. and then i'm looking i'm looking at like how did the science come about and it's only less than 200 years that <laughs> that we actually know these things and like learning about well i mean i guess we're kind of lived through that now with like pluto mm -hmm. how pluto was a planet when i was a kid and now it's not and it's just like um there's so our knowledge of the universe is still so nascent and and kids don't know all the dirty background of like how it all came to become knowledge, but uh, it makes it really, it opens your eyes a lot, I guess, to how contingent a lot of this is. Even in what you're saying, like plate tectonics, that, that understanding was only developed in like the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's so recent. Which is <laughs> fascinating. I think the other thing that Thomas Kuhn would say though, is that, and I, I haven't read him directly yet. I've read him through this this paleontologist, science historian, Martin Rodwick. I think the other thing he would say is that it's not just that people in the past knew less than us, it's that they thought of the way, the world in completely different ways in that like some of the, the things that they held to be like true and false, like the, the questions they were trying to answer don't even make sense in, in the on this side of uh, a paradigm shift. I mean like a hundred, less than a hundred years ago, before Hubble, right? They didn't know that the what we see as stars, most of what we see as stars are actually other galaxies. They're just so far away that they look like stars. Hmm. So they thought the whole universe was the Milky Way. And so you, like, you couldn't ask questions about <laughs> the, 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 like, what does it mean to have like billions and billions of trillions of galaxies? Uh, like, what does that mean for life? Like, what does it mean for the search for life in space? So yeah, like on the other side of a paradigm, like, the, the questions that you ask are completely different and make make the old questions completely um in some ways un, unknowable yeah 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 um it's cool stuff <laughs> um well i can see why you like school <laughs> <laughs> it's really fascinating yeah yeah i like thinking about the way that i think um <laughs> So then Dylan talks about the book that he read. No, no, okay, go. Okay, so Nature's Economy, A History of Ecological Ideals by Donald Worster. It's a huge book. He travels through 200 years of, from about... And then we have a bit of a break. And then at noon, we have a class that's kind of like introduction to being a grad student in history or classics or religion. <laughs> that must be a bit of an identity crisis for some of you. That's uh, a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of uh, subjects in one class. Religious studies was recently merged with history and classics. Um, 
I, I, I enjoy this group of people that we're all together in the class with, though. There are about a dozen of us um, who are new masters and PhD students, and they're all super nerdy and interesting, so I'm happy. Um, the best parts of this class are uh, the prof who teaches it. Do Dr. Heather Coleman um, is the chair of grad studies in our department, um, which means that she fields all of our questions about how to do the actual academic stuff and what classes to register for. And um, she's really good at it. And she sort of let me collapse in her office a couple of times, wondering about what classes to take and scholarships to apply for and stuff. Um, and the other thing that I really like about this class is, is the room. That is like a major character <laughs> in my experience. <laughs> Uh, okay, so this is the nice room. This is the nice room. Yeah. Um, so I, I showed up today and I was wearing a U of A hoodie and, and Trevor's like, wow, he really bought in. <laughs> I never would have thought Chris would be the type of person to dish out several hundred dollars on U of A swag. but Oh, this one, luckily, was not that expensive. Um, but, I, but I got it after my first day in this room because mm. I just loved it so much. It's a room that is lined wall to wall with history and classics books. Um, it, it, before the pandemic, it was in, intended to be a lending library, apparently. Um, and when I asked if I could borrow some of the books from this Roman historian Tacitus that were in that room, apparently I was allegedly the first person since the pandemic started to ask for some of these books. Um, and it's just, oh, it's such a joy to be around all of them. Uh, it feels good. Nice. Like, um, so that's cool, that's that is so U of A. They're like, eh, it's okay. You can oh, drink a little wine. Anyway, this particular day, our intro to grad studies topic was really appropriate for this episode because it was all about how important it is to make an effort to be part of a community. So uh, this is Dr. Coleman that you'll hear first. Well, actually, I think I'll introduce uh, my colleague, and I'll just get this fired up. It's my real pleasure to um, introduce uh, Fran Palmo, who is a professor of classics here in the department. She's a specialist on, of, of, in Greek historiography, um, and generally the history of the ancient world. And uh, she's somebody who I think we, ha we got into a conversation about how useful, uh, about how Many of us are not, we, we, we get into this business because we're not real extroverts, but the networking is key to our scholarly lives. And, um, and so I invited Fran to come and join us to talk about uh, the, whole, the whole discussion of networking and conferences and uh, being, uh, being part of a scholarly community. And so, I have one other announcement I'd like to make before we get started, which is that um, at last we have the whole group here. Where is Tulika? Oh, there she is. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so Tulika is here and Manuel is here, who have been with us on Zoom. Uh, and finally, we have everybody in Edmonton. So this is a wonderful moment. And uh, I hope that many of you will be able to come this afternoon to my backyard uh, for uh, a chance to actually chat with one another. Um, so, uh, with no, without any further ado, I'm going to let uh, Fran get started. So. Well, hi there. I mean, I'm. I'll mostly be talking about classic stuff later. So I hope there's some classics in the room. I don't know who any of you are. So I don't know. If you have. Yay. Okay. Welcome. <laughs> um, but basically, the, the preliminary remarks I'm going to make about the importance of conferences have to do are, are applicable to everybody, whether classics, history, or religious studies. So. Uh, 
So why go to conferences? Uh, every once in a while I ask myself that as I'm trying to frantically write a conference paper, usually at the last minute, <laughs> when I have a million other things I need to be doing, like, why did I agree to do this? Um, and the reason is that conferences are really important, as Heather said a minute ago, to our, to our development as scholars, uh, especially when we, those of us here in Edmonton, we are not in a place where it's easily accessible to scholars who work in our fields in other universities. Uh, we are pretty isolated here. Uh, I'm the only Greek historian uh, on, on staff. There are no other Greek historians here for me to talk to. So it's really nice to be able to go and share your knowledge and gain from the knowledge of others who are experts in your field and your, your area because chances are you're the only one here um, working on that particular uh, um, subject. And then she talks about how important it is to talk to people during coffee breaks and lunches too. So I think this is fascinating because they're talking about how important it is for all these shy history, classics, and religious students to put ourselves out there. Well, I'm not shy, but you can guess <laughs> that a lot of other people in this class are. <laughs> to, to put ourselves out there at conferences and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, can you see any issues with this specific advice in 2021? I mean, if success in grad school means getting out there and talking to people networking and schmoozing mm -hmm. uh, for all these shy grad students i can see why the attrition rate in grad school is so high <laughs> <laughs> but for 2020 2021 in particular <laughs> uh yeah i mean there's there's no in-person conferences right and you can't can't really travel internationally t t too well. Yeah, the U of A's um, given us like a travel directive not to travel overseas still at the moment. Um, so this is great advice, um, and they make a good case that going to conferences is super important. Um, but it almost seems like they're teasing us. I'm on the Grad Student Association for our department, and even we're not holding an IRL conference this year. It's going to be online. Hmm. But uh, hold that thought. Let's Find Out is brought to you by the Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens. Parents can easily miss their child's eye problems. Issues can occur in only one eye, making them difficult to notice. The earlier an eye health or vision problem is identified, the more likely it can be corrected. The ICI Learn program provides an eye exam and free glasses, if needed, for kindergarten-aged children. 25% of kids begin first grade with an undiagnosed eye problem. To book your child's eye exam, please visit optometrists.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. That's optometrists.ab.ca. This podcast is also brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself, or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. To learn more about the Vital Signs project, head to ecfoundation.org. Okay, we're back. So next part of my day, I speed home on my bike for lunch and uh, Google video chat after that with a librarian at the U of A who specializes in history collections, David Schultz. Neat. That's so niche. <laughs> who knew that there were librarians specific to fields? I didn't know that before I showed up. Um, 
he presented to our intro to grad studies class about how to use libraries to find materials for history and classics research. And he offered to do little one-on-one -on -one chats with us to start brainstorming about our research. Um, I showed up to this video call a little vague. I don't even really like know what I'm looking for really. <laughs> um, but uh, he was very kind with helping me stumble towards how to find sources. Hello. Hi, Chris. Hi. Good. How are you? Good. That's what you look like below below your eyes, right? So yeah. after the video call, I literally walked down the street to my last appointment of the day, which was a hangout in Dr. Coleman's backyard. Because it turns out we live almost within sight of one another. Um, so close that later that afternoon, I actually walked over to our house to grab extra chairs because more people kept showing up. Anyway, Finn joined me to wander over to this backyard hang that uh, Dr. Coleman was hosting. Um, and she was hosting it just to let grad students get to know each other a little bit. So we showed up with some hard ciders. And funny enough, she'd made hot non-alcoholic cider. And she brought up mugs for everybody and some bags of chips and baby bell cheeses. And we're all sitting in lawn chairs in a huge circle. Dylan's there. And we're trying to convince Tulika, who just got here from India, to try the all-dressed chips. Mm, a Canadian delicacy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Dylan and I are talking to MJ Manuasafo, who's a visiting student this semester from University of Ghana, and he's eating a mini bag of Cheetos. And um, he and I are talking about cell, cell phone plans over in Ghana. Yeah. When I was living in Ghana, I was with Tigo. Oh. And I had to, you, I had to buy all, all the like the scratch yeah, the cards card. and then enter the number. Is that the system anymore? No. Yeah, it, it still is, but I, I, it's been there for like years, but I don't do that. I use mobile money. Um, and you know, I love archives. But MJ is a man who has a really impressive knowledge of archives and also a gigantic amount of work ahead of him, potentially. I'm a new entrant into my field, um, Asante history. So um, basically what I've had to do is um, read a lot for the, for the period between my master's and you know, starting my PhD. I had to do lots of reading and trying to publish my work and getting to know the secondary literature and all that. But now for my doctoral work, I need to really get into the archival material and, mm. you know, learn, you know, what's out there in terms of Asante archival information and Asante archival data. And that's huge because mm. um, Asante is like all over the place in terms of archives. We have two archives in Kumasi alone, mm -hmm. the regional um, archives, which is like the government-owned, Ghana government-owned archives, and then there's the Menshia Royal Archive, which is like for the Asante Hene, the Asante King, who has his own private archive, but it's open to the public, by the way. And then um, we have the, um, Sunyane, the Sunyane Archive, because at that time, the Asante region was huge, and then it was divided into two. So some of the material can also be found in the Bonahafa region. And then Asante was like all over Ghana, so you can find Asante material all over Ghana, but especially in Accra, in Cape Coast and in Takrade. Mm. So you have to master all these archives and wow. the British Library, the British Archives at Kew, um, Danish Archives, Dutch Archives. Danish? Yeah, there were mm. Christianburg, um, you know the castle at Osu, which used to be um, Ghana's um, seat of government before the new one was built, okay. um, was actually built by Danes. So I could go on for hours listening to someone like MJ talking about which archives are the most useful to find documents about struggle against colonial rule. Um, but eventually we all get cold, we say our goodbyes, and my day is officially over. So what do you notice about my day, Trevor? It was long. Uh, <laughs> you had a lot. You had a lot of, a lot of social time. I mean, 
not it's professional social time yeah yeah it's a lot of social interaction that is what stands out to me too um and with the exception of that library consult all of it was in person and i gotta be honest with you trevor this day would have sucked it, it would have been a lot more boring and lonely and hard if it had been online over and over my best learning this day happened by laughing with people or being challenged by people or just listening to people and reading their body language together mm-hmm. um and midway through my day, we even had these professors tell us, like, go out and build community in person at conferences. The informal part is essential to your development as scholars. It ha- happens in coffee breaks. You've been through Zoom seminars and workshops and stuff, right? Like, when there's a break, do you talk with people? What do you do in a break on the <laughs> Zoom call? Um, well, you know, the only... Z- the only class I did during the pandemic was actually with you. You were, the, <laughs> you were teaching a workshop on um, <laughs> on uh, science communication. Um, I mean, yeah, on a coffee break, if it's a Zoom call, then I'll I'll probably go get coffee. I'll leave my computer and I'll walk away. I, even I take did care this. of some family stuff or get some food, whatever. I was teaching the class and I turned off my camera and walked away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you need a break. It's, it's like it's tiring being online all the time. Um, and I guess like what I kind of want to talk about from this is like, I, I feel like uh, like I'm making a, some leaps here about your personality during the pandemic. Like you are a person who um, like takes science seriously and takes public health seriously. Did you did you feel a real need to like put on a brave show of like, this is okay. I'm fine with like having to adapt because like this is what we need to do to like survive in a pandemic together. You mean last year? Last year and I feel like some people have a hangover for it today. But yeah, when the pandemic started, do you did you feel a need to like perform a little bit being okay with the like massive changes we were going through to to protect each other? I mean, I was definitely okay with the massive changes we were taking. Um I'm like a person who I feel like thrived in the online work environment. Mm. Um, so I don't know if this is going where you want. No, no. Yeah. T- tell me what you actually think. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, the, f- the most important thing was to, um, you know, stay away from danger, mm. especially when we didn't know how contagious mm-hmm. COVID was. Uh, and what steps we could take to like uh, keep ourselves safe and keep others safe. So it was just like, let's just withdraw. Mm. <laughs> and like, if we can, I can work at home. That's like my, I have a desk job. Uh, my whole office can do that. So I was like, yeah. And and I knew we had the technology because um, I've been doing a bit of like online, online eventing mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, over the last few years before that. So I felt like it was totally doable, but also just on a, personal level i was able to work better at home at my desk Mm. uh able to like eat better because like my kitchen was right there Mm. (laughs) wasn't eating a and w every day and uh although after about two months it was too much it was nice to have my kid at home Mm. for the first part (laughs) just like it was a lot of like really valuable family time actually And so partly that's one of the reasons I was getting a lot of social interaction from having like 
family and friend, uh, living with co-roommates <laughs> and living with family. Um, it would definitely be different if I lived alone or if I had a job where I couldn't do it from my desk at, at home. So I'm not saying this is for everyone, yeah. but it definitely worked for me. I think um, when st things started to go back to university this fall, um, I was definitely more hesitant and not necessarily because I was worried about, like I'm vaccinated and most people I know are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't exactly because I was worried, but it's more just because I was like, why rush it? Like <laughs> things are working pretty well. So let's take it easy and make sure we do this in a smart way. Mm. Um, yeah. But I, I, a lot of my friends and colleagues are instructors or te or professors. And like, I know that they had a lot of trouble teaching. <laughs> they had a lot of trouble, trouble connecting to students. Um, and even myself, uh, I worked with some students and, um, there was like one group where we had kind of biweekly meetings and like we connected at a regular time and, um, I got to know them a bit and uh, they were getting to know each other through the, through the work. Um, but then the other two groups, I may as well have never actually been <laughs> supervising them because I don't, can't remember them and like we barely interacted. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there could have, there, there, there are good ways to handle things online. Um, but it has to be the right people. It might be about chemistry it has to be like intentionally set up. I think the the processes and I don't know. Hmm. I am not an introvert. I ate much worse at home because junk food was way more accessible. Like when I go to work, I only eat what I bring with me for the most part. Um, and uh, I, I like I I I'm really glad that doing stuff online has been available because it's it's there are so many things that are necessary in our lives and it was nice to have an alternative um and it's nice for like physical accessibility reasons or for people who are out of town to take classes um but i i f feel like it really like being in class in person shows to me like i i think i i almost overcorrected with like putting on a brave face of of like how easy quote unquote it was to do things online, even teaching that course, it was really hard. <laughs> and I, I yeah. feel like, like I finally, I, I feel like I can maybe a little bit just admit like last year and a half has really sucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you did your best, but it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think probably there's, probably the more engagement you want to get out of an interaction, the harder it's going to be to do that through a computer screen. Um, so I think for, for like lectures, low, low engagement, you're just kind of listening and learning. Um, that, that to me, that was like pretty doable through a computer screen. And that it was actually nice to be able to like, put a lecture on and then do the dishes or something, which is not something I could do or more productively, like make my lunch while I'm like listening to a meeting or listening to a lecture. And that's not something I could do in an office. 
obviously, but um, but that's a far cry from like wrestling with challenging ideas with someone and <laughs> having a strong debate. And I mean, that's the kind of thing that must be way harder if you're not in person. Yeah, I mean, for a lecture that's pre-recorded, putting it on the background while doing something else, uh, like I can see the advantage of it. But for some, like I teach workshops at CJSR all the time. And if I knew that I'm like teaching something live and someone was like washing dishes in the background, oh man, I think I would be so demoralized. I would just log <laughs> off. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't take it personally, Chris. <laughs> I think it's just got to get done. <laughs> like to me, learning happens together. And I think this is maybe revealing some of my philosophical approach to like how education happens is like, there's a model of education where like students are a vessel to be filled. And then there's a model of education where you like co-create knowledge together in the room. And I am almost completely on the side of like you co-create it together. Yes, you show up and you you learn from the expertise of people who are already in the field and the materials they can present to you to help you understand it. And, um, but then like actually wrestling with what all those materials mean, that to me is where a lot of the knowledge is created. And that's like brutally hard online. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. It's made in Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Wiskaigon, on Treaty 6 territory. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. Read all your messages. We get back to you when we can. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Thanks to Lisa Piper, Dylan Hall, Heather Coleman, Fran Pownell, MJ Manuasafo, David Schultz, and everybody in the background who kindly allowed me to document what we were up to. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the inimitable Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.